Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. For you to head that way, well, I guess nursery kids probably can't head that way, but parents, you can help them head that way. Um, so this morning, we're going to be, our text is going to be in Isaiah chapter 55. It's in the second half of your Bible, just a little bit past the Psalms. You'll find the, the book of Isaiah. Um, as you're aware, I've been kind of preaching through the book of Isaiah when I've had the opportunities to fill in for Pastor Sean. So this is kind of the next uh, series of verses that's uh, on our agenda. But welcome to 2016, right? It's the middle of a political season. Every four years we have a presidential election and we talk about different things and we get to hear all sorts of political speeches, right? We know and we pay attention to these speeches because we're trying to figure out who we're going to elect. But one of the things that we encounter is what is called campaign promises, right? So the political pundits, they go on their circuit and they promise people, depending on who their crowd is, different things. More often than not, they don't really make good on those promises, but they go around making these promises trying to get people to support them. You know, and so myself personally, I've become increasingly skeptical when a politician promises something. My attitude is kind of like this. Show me the beef, right? Show me the the proof. Show me that you're going to deliver on your promises, But I know that that's not just limited to politicians, but us as well. Oftentimes, we'll promise somebody something, and we'll fail to deliver on that, and we'll we'll tell somebody, hey, I'm going to be there, and then not end up being there. Empty and failed promises is kind of the human condition, it seems, which is why the passage that we are looking at this morning is of importance to us, because the, the question is, what about God? Is God faithful to his word? Is God faithful to his promises? And what we're going to discover today is that God indeed is true to his word. So let's pick up Isaiah chapter 55. We're going to look at verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So as we are kind of looking at these two verses this morning, uh, it's important to kind of get the big picture, the context of those two verses. In verses 1 through 5, we have God's invitation to sinners. God is in the marketplace saying, would you come, would you listen, and receive my generosity, receive my covenant. And in verses 6 through 9, we have God telling us what our response is to be. We are to forsake our sins and return to God. Or in New Testament terms, it's to repent and believe the gospel. But how do we know that God's going to make good on his promise of pardon? How do we know that he's going to truly forgive us? What assurance do we have? Well, that's what Isaiah is interested in telling us, is how we can have assurance that God will be faithful to his promises, how God will be faithful to his word. So the main idea of this text is this, is we can trust the Bible as the spoken, sure, powerful word of God, which God fulfills for his glory. 
Let me say that again. So we can trust the Bible as the spoken, sure, powerful word of God that he fulfills for his glory. And Isaiah is assuring us that God's word is trustworthy. We can trust God when he speaks. So let's look a little bit in more detail in these couple of verses. The first thing is this, is that it's God's spoken word. We don't call the Bible God's word for nothing. Isaiah writes in verse 11, he says this, it's the word be that goes out from my mouth. In other words, it's a spoken word. It's a speaking God that we have. Our God is not silent, but it's a God who speaks. Sometimes we forget that it's amazing that we even have a speaking God. God could have created the world, wound it up, let it go, and removed himself from creation. That's what's called deism. He could have been that sort of God, but God was not one who wanted to remain distant. He was one who wanted to be knowable. God wanted us to know him. And he chose to reveal himself through the speaking of words. And we see this in God's character from the very beginning. You read Genesis chapter 1, we read the creation account, and we read this. And God said, and God will say, let there be, and we read a little later on, and then there was. But God, when we encounter him, what's he doing? He's speaking. He's speaking creation into existence. God could have, I suppose, fought things into existence or shaped things with his hands, but he chose to speak things into existence. God's speech, then, is how we know God. God's speech is what we call, in Christian circles, revelation. God is telling us things about himself that we wouldn't otherwise know. In other words, there are things about God that we wouldn't know apart from him saying, hey, this is who I am. For example, if we were to go to Rome and look at the Colosseum, we could maybe understand some things about the Romans who built that Colosseum, what was important to those different Romans and and sort of the kind of people they were, but we wouldn't actually know the people who built it. We wouldn't know their motivations for desiring to build that structure. We would just know some things, general things about that individual. And the builders themselves, we probably don't even know their names. At least I don't know any of their names who built the Colosseum. But it's not that way with God. You see, although we can know some things about God by observing creation, observing the world around us, we can't know God himself unless he reveals himself to us, unless he engages us. And how does he do that? He does that through his word. It's his speech. So one can see then that we have a treasure in our Bible. It's a, it's a treasure that we have. We have God's revelation of himself to man. We can know who God is because he said who he is. Francis Schaeffer, he coined the phrase that was that we have a God who is there and that this God who is there is not silent. In other words, this God speaks, this God engages. And think through your Old Testament prophets. We're here in Isaiah, who is an Old Testament prophet, but often when they're getting ready to say something, they would introduce it with, thus says the Lord. It was a divine message that was to be heard and received. It's, to, it's a stop what you're doing, pause, hit pause, stop being so busy, and hear from the Lord. In verses 2, two and 3 in the same chapter, God says this, Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the famous Shema passage, it begins with this, Hear, O Israel, hear, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It begins with what? Hearing. 
In other words, God is speaking, so we need to put our po- ourselves in a posture of hearing from the Lord. And regarding his son, Jesus, God tells the disciples, Luke chapter 9, verse 35 says this, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So our posture then, when God is speaking, we need to pause, we need to listen to him. So if you want to know God, you have to know God's speech. You have to delve into God's word. That's the, that's the way that we get to know God. Too often, I think, we, we will in talk about, like, hey, you know what? We need to be involved in God's word without actually acting upon it. We know God's speech is important, yet we, yet we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to listen to him. And God's not going to waste your time with his word. His speech is the right words at the right time. He knows precisely what to say and when to say it. Let me give you an example that uh, came to me personally in the last couple of weeks. Interestingly, it's in the very next chapter, chapter 56. God makes a promise to eunuchs in this particular passage. And he makes this promise of, you know what? I'm going to give you individuals, you eunuchs, those of you who cannot have children... I will give you a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. This is verse 5. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, some of you may be thinking, why in the world was that, was that something that really stood out to you? Well, for those of you who don't know, my wife and I, we cannot have children. So for me, encountering that passage, it was a great encouragement. So does God still speak to us today? Well, the book of Hebrews answers this for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The author says this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So our author here is drawing our attention that there's two movements of this revelation. There's God speaking to us through the prophets, and then there's God speaking to us directly through his Son. And so he speaks through the Old Testament saints, through these individuals that we call prophets, and that second and final act, he speaks to us through his son. So in a sense then, Jesus is this final speech, this final declaration of God. He's the fullest revelation of God. So if we are to know God, we have to know his son. You have to know what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and who Jesus is. It's no coincidence that John, John chapter 1, he calls him the, the Word. Jesus is the Word of God. But that maybe doesn't answer our question, though. But does God really speak to us today? Well, he does it through his Word. And whenever you want to hear a word from the Lord, we need to open up our, our Bibles. We need to read it. We need to listen to a sermon, sing songs based upon the, the Bible. And we have all these distractions trying to pull us outside of God's word. For example, we have the voice of social media and endless web surfing drawing us away from scripture. Or perhaps it's the constant entertainment that we have that's out there that's drawing us away from the word of God. Or we even have scientists saying, you know what, the supernatural really isn't all that necessary, so you don't need to believe in that. And we could go on and on and on, but the world is telling us, you know what, you don't really have to listen. You don't really, God's word really isn't all that important. So how do we cut through all that confusion, and how do we cut through and really know what is true? Well, we have to know God and his word. We have to know our scripture. Nothing less will do. 
I have yet to meet a Christian who reads his Bible too much. You know, in a lot of ways, I can kind of predict where you are at spiritually by the amount of time you spend reading and meditating on God's Word. Um, you know, but recently my, my grandmother passed away, and I, one of the things that we did growing up is after we graduated from high school, they, uh, my grandparents, they would take a week and spend that week with us as children, and they would just go through their daily routine in their life. And I remember uh, in the mornings, one of the things that my grandparents would do was just read chapters of Scripture, do their daily devotions together. And for them... I know that they were retired, but they would take about two hours to go through their, their verses, their memory verses, and, and their prayer. And that was a daily routine for my grandparents. And I could tell in my grandma, just in particular, how much that, that time shaped who she was. But God's act then, his speech, it's an act of grace in itself. God's word to us is an act of grace. He speaks to us out of his love for his people. We have an infinite God who speaks to a finite people. John Calvin, he called this divine baby talk. What he means is that God spoke on a level that humanity could understand. You know, God, I suppose, could have blew our minds by telling us all sorts of things and we wouldn't understand what he said, but he chose to talk on a level where the everyday person can understand it. And so the Bible, the the word of God, becomes an expression of his love to us. So what about you? What about us? Are we listening? Are we obeying the word of God? Do we seek to hear the preaching of his word? Are we seeking understanding? My hope, my prayer for all of us is that we would be a people who hear and pays attention to God's word. Yet that's not the only thing that God wants, that Isaiah would have us understand about God's word. He also wants us to know that this word Although it's, all, it's spoken, but that this word is powerful. So it's God's powerful word. Isaiah wants us to know, in particular, this is his main concern, is that God's word does things. He gives a metaphor related to water to kind of prove this. He talks about the water cycle. He says we have rain and snow that come, that come down from heaven, water the earth, and from that earth grows uh, these different things. We have seed for the sower and bread to the eater. And God is saying, my word is like that. It comes down from heaven, and it accomplishes the purpose that I had for it. If God says something, it's, it will happen. Earlier, I mentioned Genesis 1. In the pattern there, the common pattern in Genesis 1, we read this. And God said, let there be, for example, light. And then we read later on, and there was light. In other words, when God says stuff, the universe aligns itself accordingly. God's word has power. If God says something, it will happen. It's a guarantee. In considering the context, we see that God's invitation for sinners is what, God, is what Isaiah has in mind. He says in verse, verses 1 through 5, he says, Would you come? Would you listen? Would you re- receive my offer of pardon? And what God is saying then is, when I am calling out to the world, there will be some who respond to my call. The reason people respond to God's word then is because his word's power is working in people and drawing people to himself in repentance and faith. Jesus puts it this way 
in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. He says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is saying that when he speaks, his sheep, they hear him, and they follow him. They respond. His speech is going to have its intended effect. Paul was thinking through his own conversion experience, and he recounts to us in Galatians 1, 15-16, he says this, But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You know, prior to this verse, Paul was recounting to us of his former life in Judaism, how he was persecuting the church of God. And he was saying, look, look, God's call, what God did in me was to draw me out of that to preach the gospel. And Isaiah is teaching that people respond to the call of God. Why? Well, John explains in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The point is, God doesn't just invite people and just wait for a response. There's no, God is working behind the scenes eliciting a response. His word has its effect because the Holy Spirit is working behind the scenes, drawing people to himself. Now, for many of us who are engaged in evangelism, this is a great encouragement to us. Because we can know when we preach the gospel, when we are sharing the gospel with another person, that person may respond because God is working in them. God is using our words to draw that person because really our words are representing his words. And our words may be kind of bumbling, maybe weak and feeble at times, but God's powerful word saves sinners. So how can we not preach the word of God, knowing that God uses our words to preach sinners? You know, I was thinking of the truth of the, about this this week, and this is a great encouragement for Pastor Sean and myself as pastors, that when we preach, people respond. And God will use it however he sees fit. Sometimes it surprises me. Like, I'll, I'll be talking about things with, with youth, and there'll be some youth that I don't even think are paying attention. And then months and weeks later, I'll, I'll hear something about, like, oh, yeah, I remember when you said that. And I'll look at them like, I thought you were asleep that day. Um, but it's amazing to me how God can use that, even when I think someone is sleeping. So my confidence isn't because I'm that, all that gifted of a speaker or a communicator. It's rather in the Word of God. Because God's word is powerful. That's why I can have confidence when I teach, when I preach, when I counsel. It's because God's word has its effect. God will not allow it to return to him void. He says it's going to accomplish the purpose and shall succeed for the thing in which I sent it. So sometimes we wonder why God had some, has some things in the Bible like he does. For example... Why in the world do we have all those laws in Leviticus or those endless genealogies, right? Like, how many of you this morning are like, you know what I did before I came to church? I read through all the genealogies and numbers. That was me. Uh, I mean, right, you know, because a lot of times we, we stray from those. And sometimes we wonder, okay, so what was God's purpose in that? Why would God put something like a genealogy in Scripture? Well, God is telling us here in Isaiah that there's a reason, there's a purpose for every word that he has in his word, including those genealogies that we may just dismiss as Americans. 
But one of the things is, like, for different countries, those genealogies are really interesting to them. Like, descendants and who your ancestors are really matter. So for them, those genealogies that we think are boring are rather really interesting for them. But even for us as Americans who really don't pay all that much attention to genealogies, it's a proof that the Bible is historical. What I mean is that it's grounded in real history. We're reading about real people and real history and real events. These things really happened. Sometimes we approach God's word like it's a book of fables, but the genealogies are a way that God shows us, you know what, this is historical. This actually happened. And we are all, as believers, we are trusting that God's word is powerful. We are trusting that God is going to make good on his promises to us. How do we know he's going to forgive sinners? Well, he tells us that in his word, and we are counting on God, and God being powerful enough to make it happen. And we are trusting that God is going to have final victory over sin, Satan, and death. And how do we know he's going to do that? Well, he tells us in his word, and because he's powerful, it will happen. No one can stop the word of God because of the author. Jesus, as an aside, even a possible parenthetical comment, says in John 10, 35, says this, Scripture cannot be broken. How can Jesus make that claim? It's because God's word is powerful. Have you experienced that personally? Have you seen how God's powerful word has worked itself out in your life? You know, when you think about it from a human perspective, it can seem kind of weird or even foolish, right? Because it's like, well, here we are studying a bunch of shaped lines on a page. How in the world is that supposed to change people? Yet the amazing thing about that is that the power is not in the words themselves as much as it is in the author of those words. The reason the Bible is powerful is because God is powerful and he honors his word. Uh, I have a high school classmate of mine who demonstrates this reality. Uh, he was a year behind me in, his, in high school. Uh, Ryan was this guy's name, and he was known to be kind of a wild child. Um, he was kind of all over the place, constantly in trouble in school. At one point, ended up with an ankle bracelet uh, in, a, in a small town of 1,200, mind you. So I don't know what kind of trouble you can get into a town of that small, but he managed it. Well, when he got out of high school, he made sinful decision after sinful decision and after sinful decision. And he had embraced the lifestyle of sin. Yet, as a child, Ryan went to Awana. He went to church as a young child and teenager. So he memorized the word of God. He heard the word, spoke to him. And one time, when he was kind of coming to the end of himself, realized, you know, kind of thinking like, man, why am I doing this? This is just breaking my, my life to pieces. And he was just boarding a bus in, in Phoenix, I believe it was. And a woman handed him a note, and it simply said, God loves you. And he got that note, and he looked at it, and then he started remembering all those verses that he had memorized when he was a child. Now, he's in seminary, studying to become a minister. So when you think about it from a secular perspective, that seems ludicrous. But as Christians are all aware of, is that God is faithful to his word. God's word is powerful. And we realize that it is good and true. Another proof that God is, God's word is powerful is that at different periods in history, different men, different countries have sought to eliminate God's word. Communist China and Russia come to mind. Yet what do those things have in common? 
God's word has endured, and those nations, those governments have not. You know, Isaiah himself, he mentioned this earlier. I didn't put this on the screen, but back in chapter 40, he says this. Chapter, uh, ver- chapter 40, verses 6 through 8 says this. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So God's word will last every attempt to, to destroy it, every attempt to discount it. And we could even take the preservation of the Bible itself. Did you know that the New Testament is by far, bar none, the most well-attested ancient document in history? And why? Well, and not, and not only is God's word powerful as we have it now, but he was faithful to preserve it for all generations in history. God is faithful to his word. And so when we know the, and when we quote the Bible then, we can know that it, there is power there. When we share the gospel and are maybe feeling kind of foolish, we can trust that God's going to do something with it. Don't lose confidence in the power of the word of God. We need to trust it. We need to trust the Bible. Be bold knowing the author of scripture. So, so far we can see that God spoke his word, that God's word is powerful, But these two things lead us to a third thing, which is this, is that God's word is true. Really, you know, this is an implication of points one and point two. If God said it, and God is faithful to it, God is powerful to make it happen, it means that it is true, and we can trust it. God does not lie to us. As Proverbs 35 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So it's not... Notice the the language there. It's not some of the words, most of the words, almost all the words. It's every word of the Lord proves true. David says this in Psalm 19, 7 through 9. He says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So David says that the word of God, his descriptions of it, are perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So we can trust God's word because it is true. Yet, we all have a tendency to doubt God's word. Go back to the Garden of Eden and read through the temptation. And how did Satan entice Eve to disobey God? He cast doubt on God's word, saying, Well, did God really say? I think the reason we sin so often is because we fall into that same trap. We listen to the voice of Satan, and who is telling us we can't really trust God's word. But we know it's true. We have, he has proven it to us over and over and over again. If God promises something, he is true to it. God doesn't play mind games with us with his word or a bait and switch. He wants us to take him at his word and to believe it and to do what he says. The Bible then becomes the norm in life and practice. This principle is what the reformers called sola scriptura. What they meant, what that means is scripture alone. And they mean scripture alone is our final ground of authority for life and practice. It has the final say in the matter. 
So where you and the Bible may differ, the Bible wins. So too often we come to the Bible as an authority, like, hey, I want the Bible to adjust itself to my view of things rather than adjusting our view of things according to what the Bible says. The Bible is to be our authority. We are not to be in authority over it. And it's the only sure foundation we can have that is true for all people at all times, at all places. The Bible is an absolute truth. You know, we live in an age which denies the existence of absolute truth. It's a postmodern age where people would say truth is relative, right? It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you have an opinion. And sometimes we may be sharing the gospel with, with somebody and saying, look, this gospel, this thing that I'm telling you, it has radically changed my life. And they may reply something like this, well, you know, I'm glad that's true for you, and I'm glad that worked out well for you, but not everybody believes that. And I'm glad that it's helping you, but it's really not for me, right? And when you share the gospel, you'll sometimes hear something like that. So where do you go in that conversation? They're trying to just kind of dismiss your view. Well, I think what you have to do is appeal to the Bible as absolute truth. You could say something like this. Look, friend, the Bible is true for you whether or not you accept it as truth or not. In the same way, gravity will affect you whether or not you believe in it. It's still going to affect you. The Bible is either telling us the truth about ourselves and God or it's not. It cannot be both true and not true any more than we can have a round square. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here and wondering why you're here and hearing all this talk about God's word. And the point is this, we believe that it is true. It's not a matter of opinion that makes it true, but it's true in it as it is. Would you receive it as true? You know, it's been interesting throughout the different stages of biblical scholarship, there's been individuals who've come along and tried to show that there's something wrong in Scripture or that the Bible reported something inaccurately. Uh, And I jotted down a couple of things here. And there's one that stuck out to me. It's for a long time, the some people who were studying the Bible were kind of making fun of Christians for believing in a people called the Hittites. They were kind of like, ha you guys believe in Hittites. We don't even have any evidence that they are around. And on and on it could go, but lo and behold, what happened? Archaeologists discovered the people of the Hittites, and now you can go learn the Hittite language. And what often happens is these individuals who are skeptical about the Bible, the Bible proves itself as true. So for the Christian, then, knowing God's word as true is a sure foundation in these confusing times. In an age where anybody can have an opinion about anything uh, or their spin on the news, how can we know what is true, where it is that, that we should live? Is we have to build what is called a biblical worldview. We have to study the word of God, mind its depths, and we allow the Bible to shape how it is that we live our lives. For example, we need to let the Bible shape our view of gender, sex, and marriage, not the media. Or we need to let the Bible shape our view of finances and not the credit card companies. Or we need to let the Bible shape our pursuit of a a job, of a vocation, and not simple pragmatism, looking at our bank account statement. We need to let the Bible shape what it is that we choose. And we need to let the Bible shape our political opinions, not our favorite news channel. The Bible, as God's word, is to shape the entire domain of human existence. Christians are to shape 
are to model and are to base their lives upon Scripture, not upon the ever-changing opinions of man. So we need to all trust the Bible as the Word of God. God's Word proves itself true, and God's Word is powerful, and God has spoken to us. You know, John Calvin and the Puritans, it was interesting. I, was, I remember reading some time while ago about one of the things that they were writing against, and it was materialism and worldliness back in like the 1600s. And I was thinking like, what was materialism back in like the 1500s? I'm like, does that mean you had two horses? But, I, you know, what was interesting with that is that their, their concern, their worry, was that the world was shaping Christians rather than Christians shaping their lives according to Scripture. That they preached so often, and they worked so, so hard against worldliness. And the reason they did that is because we are sort of like fish that are swimming around in water asking each other what's water, is our culture around us is trying to mold us to conform us to look like it, rather than us being transformed by the word of God. The only way that we can come out of the mold that the world is trying to squeeze us into is by studying the word of God, by shaping our lives in a biblical worldview. So we need to trust the word of God. We need to believe it as true. We need to shape our lives accordingly. So my hope is, and my prayer is, that all of us would take steps and make practices in our lives that the Word of God would become more central. Well, as we uh, come to a close here and just think about how God's Word is true, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and maybe pray that if maybe you're here this morning and you don't even realize that it is true, ask God that He would make it true for you. And for those of us who consider ourselves Christians, ask that God would shape our lives in, uh, in principle and, and not in truth. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is a powerful word. It's a word that we can have. It's a word that we can trust. And God, in a, wor- in a world that is confusing in a world that is constantly changing, I thank you for giving us a sure foundation, for giving us something we can trust. God, I pray that we would adjust our lives according to Scripture. God, I pray that it would shape the way that we engage the world, would shape the way that that we do evangelism. God, I pray that we would trust it. God, I just thank you for revealing to us the truth revealing to us yourself so that we can know you. Lord, I thank you for telling us how we can be saved in your word. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen.